I don't really know if it's as bad as that. Yeah. A lot of people put in a wee bit. It's the same as never people climb my worst in a way. If the wind's 20 mile an hour and a foot of snow, they'll come back and say it's 40 mile an hour and two foot of snow. Glorifying the story yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Really. And to me, that's the way people are. But I, like, if you, t- if you make it too extreme, well then people say that's not for me, I could never do that. Whereas if you tell it the way it is, Maybe that's ordinary people me. can do it. <laughs> no, but ordinary people can do it. Yeah. No, it's the same as I know people, loads of people that have taken up Everest and have come back and like you hear them talking to other people and there's none of the truth. And that's why people say to me, why have I not done a book? And I say the truth doesn't sell. That, my friend, is Noel Hammer. And this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome back to the podcast. We have a great episode for you this week. Um, I really don't know where to start with Noel. The son of a farmer from Dramora in County Down, he has forged a lifetime of achievements. He's won numerous adventure races, ran a lot of the iconic ultramarathons such as the Comrades, the Relentless Bad Water in California, which is a 135 mile run through Death Valley in treacherous conditions. Amazingly, he placed 10th in that race. Um, I found it interesting that he met Lisa Smith there, and a couple of months later, Noel placed her in the Marathon de Sables, where she actually became the first and only woman um, to actually win the Marathon de Sables. His mountaineering success is endless, however, there are a few of his achievements that I find fascinating. He summited Everest no less than eight times, being the first to summit many mountains, including Burt Cam, which, which has a treacherous snow-laden ridge at the summit. Any wonder it's never been done before. And he was also the only Irish man to have successfully climbed K2 last year, which won him Joint Man of the Year award by the Outsider magazine last month. I could go on and on. I love the fact that he completed the seven highest peaks on all seven continents and then decided to go from summit to sea by manpower using bike, run or ski after each summit. Hope you enjoy the podcast. But just before we start, I'd like to give our sponsor Sponder Run a shout out. It's quite a bit cost associated to the podcast, so I've really appreciated their support over the last few months. The next race is their last of the winter series, which is in Castle Welland on the 23rd of February. The last race is always a scream, so hope to see you all there. Without further delay, I bring you Noel Hanna. Now I used to do a lot more running, but I would do a lot more. I, I like the gym. I do a lot of work in the gym too. You know, like cross trainers and steppers and things like that, rather than just putting the mileage in the running. Yeah, I think that's somewhere where I'm going to focus on at the minute now, the yeah. next couple of months, is trying to build a bit of core. Yeah. I think the older you get, the more important it gets Definitely, as well. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? What age are you now? I'm 43, 43. come to 44. Um, I have UTMB coming up this year, right. so CCC in Mount Blanc. Yeah. And there's no way, I, kn- I know when I'm out on the mountain now, you know, I can feel there's something missing ah, there. yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you need to build that yeah. back up again, especially yeah. from the lack of training. Yeah. So there's, there's quite a few iconic races out there. Um, like, I started about seven or eight years ago and read... Loads, loads of books like Dean Carnazes yeah. and, and books like that. And a lot of the big races come up in that. And I've always thought, oh, it'd be great to do the Great Western State. It'd be great to do Leadville. Yeah. And those big races. Vegas. But there's one race <laughs> that comes up 
And I thought, there's no way on this planet would I do that race. And that's bad water. Mm. 135-mile race yeah. through Death Valley, yeah. the hottest places on the planet. Yeah, I know. It's beautiful. So you've done that race? I've done it. I My wife's done it too. Wow. She done it. i done it in 98, I think, or 99. And then my wife done it in 2004, 2003. And another good 100 mile race, if you ever think of doing one, is the Los Angeles Crest. Beautiful. San Bernardino Mountains. And you're out in the mountains, it's really, really beautiful. So how did, like, how did, like, a young lad from Dermot, Herb, because back then it's obviously diff- it's different now, all the internet, uh, and the exposure yeah. and all that. It's like the bad water. I actually got into it, obviously it was into gym work and whatnot, but I got into the running, me and a friend from Belfast, we done a fitness instructor's course together in the late 90s. Just wanted to do it and I met him on it and then we decided running and then there was a, was read about a race in one of the running magazines, the Himalayan 100, the stage race. Yeah. And we just decided we would go and do it for charity and raise money. Uh, British Brain and Spine Foundation we raised something like 20,000 but we trained a lot in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And I like... I think in, in a lot of the mountain races, some a lot of people are fast up, but they're not very good. They lose a lot of their yeah. time on the foot and coming down, whereas I'd be quite good on the coming down. And the first three days of this race, I think the first day we started at uh, somewhere in around 5,000 feet, the race started at, and we ended up at just over 11,500 feet after the first day. Jeez. And I just went out. To finish the race, my friend had doubts before even going over to do the race. No, I, I don't know if I'll be able to finish it. And I sort of says, well, if you've that sort of mindset before you go, there's mm-hmm. no point in you going. Because it's going to drag you down it's going to be mentally. Tough, yeah. And I said, we'll go, we'll finish it. It's only an average of 20 mile a day for five days. And we've done a lot of training in the morning. So it's, a five, it's a five stage race. Five day stage race, yes, but it's a lot one twenty. 2 mile, 24 mile, 26 mile, 17 mile, and the last day is just 13 mile. It's class is um, one of the most beautiful places oh, on the world, isn't it? That's where I, after the first day, you're up at the village, and you're looking all over, because it's in India, Darjeeling area of India, and you're looking all over Everest, Lhotse, and you can see like four of the world's five highest yeah. mountains, and that's where I got, someday I'll climb them, just and that's... Just sort of connected oh it's just yeah yeah beautiful it was just you were just looking right across at them and i was obviously i'd never seen them before that's what i was going to say is that was that your first that would have been my first visit i'd been to india before but to the beach resort goa yeah but this was the first time actually in the mountains and in the the hills because it must have been breathtaking to see that for the oh very just first time. Um, unbelievable especially coming from like we have a beautiful place anyway. yes the moments yeah. are absolutely yeah. beautiful so never take anything away from that um but actually to but the mornings are only else, like hills compared to yeah. out there like you're going it's a very small cascade like of, yeah of small mountains like yeah you, like you can't really get lost in the mornings like you no. know just, like i was up there friday morning and the ice and the cold and it was just beautiful Mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful so it was such a great panoramic view oh yeah it's it's unbelievable whenever you're up there and the weather's good it was windy and blowy but it's still it was beautiful. i'm intrigued i'm gonna play you back bad water a second because yeah. i know it's 1999 actually funny enough that was the year they made 
Amazing. Film that I've seen on it. Yeah. Aptly named Running on the Sun. Yeah, yeah. And I've actually got a wee clips of the three minute or four minute trailer that they had on it. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen the movie. It's uh, right. Yeah. I remember seeing it a couple of years ago and yeah. thinking, no. <laughs> yeah. No, I knew all them and obviously it was the yeah. same year that they'd done it. Because there was one guy in that clip, he actually had a leg and an arm missing. Actually, I'm trying, he was an English guy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, an army guy. I'm and trying it, to think of his name. One thing I was amazed though Chris, was... Chris, Chris, Chris Moon, was it? There, there was one guy, I remember, was... remember seeing him finishing it and thinking, wow. Because all of a sudden it sort of opens up your own mind yeah. with things that are possible. Oh, without a doubt. And there yeah. was one guy on that film that amazed me. He was, a, I think he was a school teacher from England. You know, he's very proper sort of, but he was maybe... Older man. Yeah, he was yes. maybe six or seven years yeah. of age. Like... Did he and die? He, he struggled through it. Like, you yeah, know, he'd done it about eight or nine times, was it? Or ten times? Yeah, but it's, it starts below sea level. It does, 282 feet below sea level. Yeah, so it's going to be It's hot. the lowest part. Oh, it's... Actually, whenever they start the race, what they've actually done is cracked an egg on the tarmac road and it's actually <laughs> cooked it. No way, it's... So whenever I was there with my wife in 2003 or four, whenever she'd done it, we were staying at uh, what we call the Springs area, which is about twenty mile from the start line, and at twelve o'clock at night it was one hundred and ten degrees. Jeez, That's so it's like forty five. Yeah, somewhere around that, yeah. like at night, because yeah. the race has to start at night, doesn't it? To try and climatize you to that. No, I think the race it used to start either at six in the morning or ten in the morning. Right. I think it used to start at six, and then because there was so many people doing it. They started it in two ways, mm. either six o'clock or ten o'clock, I think. And maybe that's the way it is now. Because it's a real tough race to get into. I remember, I remember is, yeah. hearing the likes of David Goggins trying to get into that race. He's yeah. got a great story about how he was trying to get into bad water. And he had to do a couple hundred mile races just to try and yeah. have something on his CV. CV. So won't just allow anybody yeah. into this. Yeah. So what was on your CV at that time? So you had a few hundred mile races, I suppose. I had done... Up. The Himalayan race and I won the Himalayan race. I was going to say there. The first year was just uh, the first three days. It was all off road and rough, which suited me down to the ground. And there was a German guy who was a very good runner, but was maybe running 130, 140 kilometers a week. Uh, So the first three days I had built up. I'm sort of thinking thirty minutes or twenty seven minutes of a lead over him. He was second place. And there was a girl, Lisa Smith, who would have been the big Badwater runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was in that movie, 2000 and, or 1999. So she was on it too. And the Himalayan 100 mile stage race, she was going to do the Marathon de Sable. Mm-hmm. And Discovery Challenge were following her. So she sort of asked me, would I pace her for the Marathon de Sable after she had met me in the... Himalayan 100 and we went out and out then I think it was 98 and done the Marathon de Sable with her and she won it she was well she won the female section of it and what did that mean pace it like did you do the whole thing with her or did yes. you take sections no I would run the whole race with her but I would run the whole race with her until say the finish line you seen it a kilometre ahead yeah. I would run on then and try and make up time on other people yeah. but I would run with her the whole time until we were coming into the finish line and then I would run on and, and try and get a few places. That's crazy, like, so, 
Because you just sort of like exploded into that scene, didn't you? Or was there yes. a lot more smaller races sort of put you into it? You never, I'd never, I'd never like... done nothing before. I think I'd maybe done the Lisburn half marathon <laughs> once with my brother whenever I was maybe 20 or something and that was it. Where, where do you think that came from then? Because you did, obviously you're a fitness coach. I think it probably came from running in the mornings. Mm. It definitely did. Because we were up and down, I was up and down in the mornings two or three times a week more maybe in the in the summer just as sort of a youngster sort of growing up no just after i started into the run and no way okay from about probably from about 27 28 years of age up mm. before that i was just in the gym and maybe running five k's in the running machine or something like that but never really into my fitness mm. played football Played rugby and things like that at school, but it's never quite unbelievable. Never like, nothing outside. And the Himalayan race then was that a real shock to you then that you were right? Certainly it was. Yeah, couldn't believe it. Mm. Obviously, the first three days was rough running, and then the the last two days, the seventeen kilometers and the thirteen kilometers, or miles. I sort of thought to myself, well, that's thirty miles. If I sort of keep my pace half, it's going to give him baller no way to beat me by thirty minutes or 27 minutes over the 30 miles and i think the 17 mile day he might have brought back 10 minutes or something like that mm-hmm. and then the 13 mile day he might have took three minutes or four minutes on the road because he was faster than by then so what what do you think then when you finish that race do you think mm, i've actually have a bit of an issue that i didn't really actually appreciate that i didn't I really i just i think for me it was finishing the race and because I was doing it for charity, mm-hmm. the charity was going to get a lot of pub. I wasn't really worried about yeah. the publicity from myself. It was more, I was thinking, well, the charity could benefit from this now and that's yeah, why the papers yeah. and whatnot. And then they got in touch with the papers uh, and got good publicity for the charity. So it must have been amazing then, um, your woman Lisa asking you then. Yeah, yeah, it was. We yeah. got on really. And even before the, like, Lisa had a, a doctor that was walking the Himalayan 100 mile race, walking and running and walking and running. And he actually told me after the race, because before the race started, they had like, take you out to different areas and shown you different areas and like had children coming up in the inside the, the wee rooms that you were in and, and you were talking to them and all and just like a community based thing. And like me and Craig, we were having a bottle of beer or two bottles of beer and she actually said to the doctor man no way don't associate yourself with the irish because they'll never finish the race they're drinking <laughs> and he told me that no way and lisa told me that herself whenever she seen us having a few drinks and whatnot she thought, great reputation like yeah she just thought and, and she told the the doctor was with her no way if you want to finish the race don't associate yourself with me and craig <laughs> and then it turns around, I win the race, and then we became good friends after that. Brilliant. Where, so. where, where's your wife from then? She's from uh, here too, but she, we mostly live in, we live a lot in South Africa. Okay. So we do, so I'm back and forward. And um, when you've done the, the sort of, she had done the bad water as well. Um, like, were you living in Africa then? How were you able to climatise to that sort of race? For the heat, what I used to do was take a bicycle into a sauna. Stationary bicycle in the sauna Brilliant. and train for the heat in there, and that's what it, I remember doing it in a wee gym in Ballinahinch, Denver Stewart used to. Own. Yeah, uh, I've heard of people bringing the treadmill into the sauna, yeah. like and working it. Like, yeah, so. I, I, I used to take the bicycle, the racing bike, and the turbo trainer into the sauna 
uh, and just sit in there and, and ride in there for 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour at a time just to get used to the heat. And going through that, because the temperatures sort of, I think this year they sold to like 53 degrees yeah, yeah. centigrade. That, that year was quite a bad weather. It so was wind, was wind, wind a lot of wind, yeah. The weather yeah. front came in, didn't right, it? Like yeah, yeah. Norman, and... yeah, you, you had to have the face <laughs> and everything covered up. I remember Dean Carnaz is reading in his book as well. Like he, he was talking about he had to run on the white line. Tried I. To prevent his gutties from yeah, melting. sort of melting. I don't really know if it's as bad as that. Yeah. A lot of people put in a wee bit. It's the same as never people climb my worst in a way. If the wind's 20 mile an hour and a foot of snow, they'll come back and say it's 40 mile an hour and two foot of snow. Glorifying the story yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Really. And to me, that's the way people are. But I, like, if you, t- if you make it too extreme, well then people say that's not for me, I could never do mm. that. Whereas if you tell it the way it is, Maybe that's ordinary people me. can do it. <laughs> no, but ordinary people can do it. Yeah. No, it's the same as I know people, loads of people that have taken up Everest and they've come back and like you hear them talking to other people and there's none of the truth. And that's why people say to me, why well, have I not done a book? And I say, the truth doesn't sell. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it does though. Um, so bad, going through bad water then, like, how long does that take? Is that like 135 miles? Is there any point through there you think, Jesus. Like, I think if you when... do it, there's a silver, you get the silver buckle, I think, if it's under 40 hours. So you, you have, I think it's 60 hour or 64 hour uh, time frame on the race. Okay. Uh, but if you do it under 40 hours, I think you get a silver buckle. And how did your wife get on in that sort of she, race? Like? Yes, yeah, she came in, uh, she got the silver buckle as well. Wow, that's she, brilliant. She, did. Right. So you... she after to about twenty two mile, twenty three mile, she had some like fast food chicken, and she just started throwing up. So then we, because mm. in that there, you put it just a, like a flag or a marker on the side of the road. You can come off the course and then for an hour or lie down for an hour and then go back to your marker and start yeah. running again. But your time still is continuing. It's mm. not as if your time yeah. stops. So we took her off the, the course for about an hour and just let her lie down and get water in her and then took her back out and she was okay. Hydration must be a huge, yeah. a huge challenge. And I'm, I'm one of these ones that doesn't drink much water. Yeah. Like used to, whenever we're doing the adventure race and whatnot, they used to call me the camel. And <laughs> even the likes of uh, Martin de Sable and whatnot, I would very rarely drink much water, even on the mountains. No way, on summit day, on Everest, I would, if I drank, a half a litre of water, that would be it. Yeah, quite a lot of the, I don't want to say better endurance athletes, but for some reason they're able to adapt. I don't know whether a lot was in our head or how we train our body, um, but a lot of people are able to go for long periods of time without fuel and water. I think you can train your body. Because mm. I remember a friend of mine, Pat, who has climbed Everest with me and done quite a lot of things with him, and Pat would do like these five, six day races all over the world. And whenever Pat started, first of all, running with us, Pat used to sweat and sweat and sweat. And Pat would have been putting mm-hmm. more in water. And Pat will tell you now that he wouldn't drink half of what he mm. was whenever he started. Yeah, your body just sort of adapts, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. But coming back to your natural instinct, like yeah. you know, we used to be hunter-gatherers, like, yeah. it's not as if you're yeah. drinking water Tread, every yeah. 10, 15 minutes. minutes yeah. to sort of yeah. keep you going. So I think that's why people... A lot of these stories say that you have to drink three litres an hour, but the body's not made to take that in and put it out. You're never going to sweat three litres an hour. 
Like, you have to be very careful in what you read, don't you? Like, yes. I sort of fell into that trap. Yeah. A lot of it's just commercial oh, rubbish advertising, oh, like yeah. trying to get yeah. you to buy yeah. crap. Like, yeah. And that's why I would never read a book or anything about a race or a climb before mm-hmm. going to do it. And it's the same thing if you're training somebody for a marathon. The first thing they'll say to you is, what about hitting the wall? But whose wall is it? Mm. It's somebody else's wall that they've read about. That's it. Like, and I, I learned at the beginning, I used to hit the wall <laughs> yeah. until I understood. Because everybody is so individual. Yeah. Oh, how yeah. you train your body. Yeah. And I started training by heart rate, so you're not really dipping into your sugar. So yeah. then the wall just disappeared. Yeah. Actually, I don't even know if it's in your head or not. Uh, I think it People is. People are telling yeah. me 18 to 20 miles, miles yeah. coming. If I do a 100-mile race, my f- hardest is the first five miles. Yeah. Up. Yeah, and that, that's basically my hardest. Yeah. My heart rate's. Well, what do you think sort of drew you to hundred mile races to begin with? Do you think it was just the Himalayan one for charities? Probably or? the Himalayan one, yes. And then you hear about all the different ones, and and the views and the scenery from them mm. are just just adventure, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Running around the roads like. Yes, Death Valley's nice because you're going out through two or three different mountain ranges. Yeah, Death Valley. Like. Yeah, but the like it's the hottest place on the it's, planet, isn't it? It's supposed to be classed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it is good, and I love the heat. I yeah. I love the two extremes. You no, know, I can obviously the mountains you could have minus forty or minus fifty, but I love the heat too. And I could lie out in thirty degrees heat, forty degrees heat. If somebody keeps turning me like a spit, if you <laughs> I, I love the two extremes, which is nice. So the, the Himalayan race then, the first time you sort of set your eyes on Everest, I'm sure you can remember that very moment of seeing it. Oh, just I seen it and I remember uh, the sun setting just down and you could see this just range of peaks. It was just unbelievable. And you've so now climbed it like eight times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and how did, that sort of, how did that sort of come about then originally? Well, I mostly probably got into the running and the long distance running as well it along with adventure racing yeah so it came so, first didn't it really uh the himalayan race came first that was the first real race mm. i done and then uh 99 2000 whenever i was doing the runs too i was doing the eagle challenge the the uh, adventure races too it's a 12 day sort of it is i it? yeah yeah and i was taking a look online there and just taking a look for your, at your cv and a lot of the adventure races in ireland like you've taken first and i was with one a lot of there used to be one here called the adrenaline rush and yeah. but it all depends who you race with too if you know me and gary robertson from Enniskillen raced with a brawl and sister from the uk on the race down in Enniskillen, and a lot of it's to do with good navigator you know, it's the same as doing the morning mountain marathon you mightn't be the fittest but if you have a good navigator it's half the battle just taking the right lines yeah. and saving yeah. time definitely definitely what type of endurance or adventure race do you prefer do you like like sort of mixed sort of racing or is it all i like the ones where there's no stop points in them no way a lot of them you have nowadays that there's like dark zones where you come into an area and you have to rest for three hours or five hours. I don't like them. I prefer the way the ego was that you start from A, you finish in Z, and you decide when you want to stop and when you don't want to stop. And you think it's just that sense of adventure and keep on sort of... I think it is, and knowing your body, what your body's like, 
if it doesn't sleep after 24 hours or if it doesn't sleep after 48 hours and you're not putting much fuel into it mm. it's, it's just knowing your own body and how did you prepare for that just again just really sort of up in the morning just so again yeah you've done yeah. a lot of racing though so you're using sort of the racing the racing was, you weren't really training much between the races yeah. No, way. after 2002-2003 I was racing a lot with different teams, a, a team in the US and like we would have been racing probably every month, mm-hmm. even if it was only maybe a three day race or a four day race. Was, well, there's no international races around then for sort of adventure sort of? Not, well it was just the Eagle Challenge and there was the likes of Southern Traverse down in New Zealand, uh, Primal Quest then come on. Uh, North Ireland or Northern Ireland had like one, two day, three day races just, and that was it. Yeah, we we do, we done a podcast with a girl called Laura Driscoll there a few weeks back. Right. Um, her dad does um the wee binions they're called as right. well. He's sort of triathlete at the age of sixty. Right. And it surprised me. She's an adventure racer really, and she's just tried her hand at the Wicklow fifty mile race and she won it. Right. She came first right. as well. And it surprised me how many adventure races are actually about. Yeah, yeah. They're not as they're not seen as much as not. There's not as much sort of commercialism. I think, I think they might start up again because the mm. Eagle Challenge is coming back, and uh, Amazon is covering Eagle Challenge, oh, so okay. it's going to get a lot, a lot of publicity. The same as whenever Eagle Challenge was on before, it was in Discovery Channel, and I think then whenever Eagle Challenge stopped. The adventure racing stopped sort of way too. There wasn't as many. So we just quiet down a little bit. I think so. Yeah, yeah, and I think obviously with the the new eagle coming out and Burr Grill's been involved with it too. Gives it a lot of publicity. Yeah, like, yeah. And like the the race scene has just exploded now. You can do a marathon every single week. Right, in yeah, Ireland, so, or there's yeah. races every single yeah. night, and that's drawn a lot of focus, I suppose, away from that. But people are looking for bigger and better. Better, and I think people are just looking after their body better now mm-hmm. than what they did like my parents and whatnot they were farmers they would never have ran or anything mm-hmm. like that there and most of my friends parents were all farming people too or from the local area and like you would have never heard of them going up the moors or whatnot so where, where, where did your influence come from i don't know <laughs> i don't know that's Black sheep, I don't, I don't know. I have no other cousins or anything that's into the walking or the running mm. or any. Because it's a strange thing. You know loads of people in your local area, like, and it's sort of a natural instinct for people to follow the path. It's right, yes. resistance. Yeah. And a nice big comfort yeah. zone. You yeah. Do a nice job and all that. Um, black sheep is the best way you could really describe that. Yes. Yeah. For some reason, you didn't go down that path. No, no. And, and it's just, it's the same thing as I have a good friend... He's going to Mexico. I'm going down to Mexico here uh, this day week. I'll be in Mexico to climb Orizabo, which is the highest volcano in North America. And I'm taking an 81-year-old with me. From, uh, he's Danish, but he lives over in Newcastle. And he didn't do anything until he was 70. That's and since he went to base camp, Everest Base Camp with me whenever he was 70 and his two sons, and another 71-year-old man. And every year he's done something different with me. Should it be Mont Blanc, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus? That's absolutely unbelievable. And even in September there this year, he had never done that. He's done Donard, but he had never done Carntool. So I was home here and we went down along with five or six other people that has done climbs with me. He'd done Carntool, no bother, he was 80. You must find that very inspiring yourself. 
Do you know what I mean? Because to think that you can go on for that length of time. It's 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 brilliant because and the way I look at it is for me now doing a climb or doing something. Yes, it's satisfaction for me, but it's seeing the satisfaction in the people that you're with. Yeah. You know, uh, in September last year, I had a 11-year-old American and his dad on Kilimanjaro. And just seeing that young kid mm-hmm. making it to the summit and like the glee in his face was just unbelievable. And he is going to Arecibo with his daddy as well with me. So if the, if the old man and the young kid make summit in the same day, there'll be 69 years of a difference. That's unbelievable. Which will probably be like 69 years yeah. from the oldest person with you. You may never see that again. No, never. And, and even the 81-year-old, uh, he's had his son and his granddaughter, the three of them, on Mont Blanc together with me and on so Kilimanjaro. Three generations. Three generations, yeah. You must find that very rewarding. Oh, it's it's just... Money couldn't give you that. You couldn't, no. no. And it's the same as one of the times that I'd done Everest. I think it was 2010 or 11. Uh, an American guy, James Wilde, had tried Everest a couple of times before and didn't make summit. And just about 20 metres, 30 metres from the summit in 2011 or 12, he just got down on his hands and knees and started to cry because he knew that year he was going to make it. And for me, that... Just yeah. done everything. No, uh, it's just seeing the joy. Because uh, he had failed two years in a row before. And then just going down on his hands and knees, like, the same, the tears in his eyes was just... You've done Everest eight times yeah. in total. Um, you guided people then yeah. up there. Yeah. And, like, it's it's an amazing mountain, obviously, has to have the highest of respect. Yeah. And, like... They call it the open graveyard yeah. for a reason. Yeah. So many bodies up there. Yeah. I remember seeing one day the Sherpas having a, a clean-up day. That's right. They're yeah. having a beach clean-up. Yeah. They're actually going up and lifting yeah. bodies up yeah. the mountains Moving, to try and yeah. tidy it up. Yeah. And they reckon there's about 130 bodies yeah. still up there. And it can go wrong very, very quickly up there, can't it? It can, but obviously avalanches and things like that is, is out of your control. You haven't got a control over that. Knowing the condition of the mountain, maybe yes, but probably a lot of the things that happen in the mountain can be human error too. Mm. No way. Maybe not getting the right forecasts, maybe not having the right gear, not having the right company you're with, uh, not having enough oxygen. Even the mindset, I suppose. Yeah, and not even having a spur oxygen mask or a spur uh, regulator. Something like that goes wrong and you don't have an extra. And a lot of people not having the skill to be there mm-hmm. you know i always say to people anybody i was doing rope work this morning with two from dublin that's going to everest with me this year i always say to them that you should be prepared that you have the skills to come down the mountain or go up the mountain on your own mm-hmm. because if you're in the summit and a sharper breaks his leg are you going to sit in the summit and die with him you have to come down on your own without him exactly and I always say that people at least have some sort of the skill that you can do that. Have you ever been guiding somebody up there who, and you just know you're not going to make it? Who's sort of, do they always listen to exactly what you're saying? I most touch wood, all the ones that have, mm. even in Kilimanjaro, I remember doing Kilimanjaro with a group of about nine or ten local people and people from the UK. And a young guy about 25, probably the fittest of the team because the, the team ranged from 25 till about 65 
and uh, the guy's father was with me too, very, very fit man. I think he was probably 60 then. And the son rode for his uni- or, uh, rode as in rowing for his university. And just on summit day, I just seen him, he wasn't going right up at all. And I said, I'm going to keep a wee eye on here. And the father was saying, oh, he's okay. And I says, look, I'm the one that's in charge here. And like the young kid, well, he's 25 year old, was just dotting about all over the place and wasn't right at all. And I, I turned him around because the mountain's always going to be there. Yeah. And that's the way I say to people, no way, why risk your life for altitude sickness or anything else whenever the mountain's going to be there? Especially that age, 20 yeah. years of age. Yeah, and he was as fit as anything. Yeah. And it just, the altitude just got to There's been some amazing people climbing that mountain. Like, yeah. I've seen... And it doesn't surprise me that he was Japanese, but the oldest person that climbed it, he's like 80 years of age. That's right, yeah. Um, Japanese are great though, yeah, do you they, know what I mean? They really yeah, look after themselves, yeah, and they yeah. do lo- they've got great longevity as yeah, well. Like, yeah. And it must be amazing though, some of the people that you've met sort of climbing that mountain. I could tell you, you meet some characters, like, in, like I remember going 2016 till uh, Kathmandu and I was working for a Russian company and then I had to go to the airport for one of the clients that the Russians had and he was from Hong Kong and he got off the plane and he came out and he had a rucksack, a small rucksack, <laughs> no duffel bag or nothing. I was thinking, obviously his luggage has got lost or something and he says, no, I have no gear. And I says, what about your down, you know, your heavy boots? He says, I have to rent them out in Kathmandu. So once you hear that, you know yeah, that's yeah. recipe for disaster. And warning signs. Yeah, like. yeah. And we rented the boots and bought, he bought some things. And even whenever we were going through like a, a waterproof coat and waterproof trousers and warm underwear, he was sort of asking me, saying like, you will tell me when I need to wear this. <laughs> and I was just thinking to myself, but sure enough, he never got outside of advanced base camp. Yeah. So he didn't. But it was a waste of money because he had probably paid the Russians probably eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, so it's it's a big expense, like isn't yeah, it, to get even yeah. get on there and the permits yeah. even yeah. to get onto. I think a lot of people go just to say they've done it and talk at company meetings or CEO meetings or things like that. Very that I've done, yeah, yeah. Which is, I think that's for me. That's not the way you should be doing it. Mm. You know, if you don't have a passion of doing it, why do it? Just to talk to somebody else about it yeah because you really want to try and like the more you do it yourself and the harder it actually is yes the more that you're the more get pleasure you get back out of it really? yeah like, and you see some of the minimalists sort of stripping it right back and trying to get you know you, you don't really i know people are different like you don't really want to have somebody do it for you and that you know but that I mean? seems to be the way and even on k2 which is a dangerous mountain you see that as well have you ever found yourself in trouble in Everest then? You thought like, mm, this is... Again, I've been very lucky with all the conditions. Probably the only time I thought if something was going to happen, we were on the north side whenever the earthquake happened. Yeah. And it was just great to experience such... The world sort of shouting at you. Oh, it was just... Like, we were standing in solid rock. But it was like walking in the bog lands up and round by the moors. Like the whole ground was just like a swamp. You would have thought it was just like a swamp below you. 
Because Everest is just a combination of the two plates, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Sort of clashing together. And they say it sort of raises like four millimetres of an inch. That's right, every so often. But every year, like where so. we were, where our camp was at base camp on the north side, there is like a lake just in the glacier, literally 20 metres from where our base camp is. And I was more worried about it opening up yeah. and just washing, not that it probably would have killed you, but you would have been washed down the valley a bit out of base camp. You must, you must get a real deep sort of respect for the planet in general that you wouldn't have. Like, cause if you're there and it's like you're feeling that, I can only imagine what that's like, you know. It's oh, it's, just... It, it, it just shows you like Mother Nature's a wonderful thing. Mm. Whenever you see like, no matter how much technology and things that there is, Mother Nature's still the most important thing out there. Now you say you've been lucky, but it sounds like it feels like to me that you've really sort of connected with the mountain, and you sort of really understand how to read the conditions, and you're very sensible. Obviously, you have to be. Yes, well, that's if you get it saying. wrong. Yes, I'm not going to take risks. I'm not going to take <laughs> risks. Life. I'm not going to put anybody else at risk if I can help it. No you must way. have a really good understanding of the mountain and the weather, and it's like the jet stream runs right over the top of Everest, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the modern day technology that we have and being able to predict weather and things like that is making it safer. Yes, definitely. It's making it a lot, lot safer now. And we would normally cross two or three different weathers. We wouldn't just have one weather, no way feed. We would have two or three weather feeds and then just go through the two or three and see uh, that they're all crossing in the same place rather than taking one weather condition. It's the same as here. You hear the weather in the morning that it's supposed to rain and then by lunchtime the sun could be out whereas if you take three different weather forecasts you have a better chance of, of getting it right yeah what's the latest date then that you've summited up in the mountain i think the latest i don't even know my dates <laughs> but i've summited in the 21st of may two or three times i think possibly 24 25 of may has been my latest summer because it's like a monsoon sort of comes in after and that's sort of it then, it is it? yeah the sort of some, it, it all depends because sometimes people have summited Everest like as late as first week in June right and some people have summited as early as the end of April yeah. so it all depends every year is different I think the jet stream sort of moves off it a little bit doesn't it, it sort of calms the winds down a little it bit it does but then you get a lot of the snow and then yeah. the rains are coming obviously the rains monsoon. are coming in yeah the monsoon season and then you're getting dumped on in snow i remember 2014 i think uh, the snow really came in really really heavy uh early on like the 25th 26th of may and even at base camp on the north side where normally you drive into mm. uh the last two or three days just dump dump snow and we had to walk out with all our gear and the yaks down to the valley below because the, the snow was so deep and obviously the monsoon was coming in Jesus. and you it was just pretty handy yeah right? like, yeah <laughs> yeah so so what just, is what's the difference then between like k2 it's the second highest mountain in the world yeah um there's just around 300 people that have climbed that i think 302 people actually no maybe more now because yeah. this year well, i mean say that 2018 was the biggest season ever that the amount of people has summited. Because you, you were the first Irishman that successfully summited and descended. Ten, that's correct, is yeah. It, is it Joe McDonald? Joe McDonald was there in 2008. Yeah, so it was 10 years yeah. there, yeah. actually. So, yeah. 
<clears throat> unfortunately he didn't make it back down that's right yeah um, so like why because it's almost 3,000 that have sort of some of the Everest yeah it's just because more. it's more technical or it's definitely a lot more technical and probably the weather conditions are a lot harsher uh, in the Karakoram than they would be in the Himalayas okay do you, but people then tend to sort of drift towards Everest more so than K2 then yeah and obviously because of Everest it's the highest yeah, and okay. that's no way that's no it's the same as doing anything people always wants to go for the the one that's the highest but, but k2 listen, I, I liked k2 as well but like wow like the first irish man to successfully climb and descend k2 like that will always be in history books how did that feel hitting that summit it was nice hitting the summit but for me i wasn't doing it to be the first yeah. i was wanting to do it for me yeah no way if i had been yes it's while you're doing it it's nice being the first but if i had been the 21st mm-hmm. i still would have felt the same on the summit but then on the summit you're only halfway there and that's yeah. a lot of people put a lot of effort and whatnot getting to the summit and i always like to have energy i love getting back down the mountain as far as possible because you don't know if the weather changes or conditions on the mountain and whenever we left the summit like at eight o'clock in the morning by half eight, nine o'clock that same evening, three of us, the three that we were climbing together, was back at base camp having a beer. Wow, that's brilliant. On the same day, and that's, no way, I like that. Most people would stay on the mountain, camp two, camp three, but then you still have to get up the next morning and make it down. But I always say... It's going to be very exhausting. It is, you're tired, but it's the pleasure of getting back to a decent camp. You're getting half decent food give them a more comfortable bed and if anything did happen it's very hard to have a rescue whenever you're camp two or camp mm. three in a mountain good, and that's why i always say whenever you're climbing and the conditions look good we'll try and get up and down as far as possible rather than thinking oh i can do that tomorrow that's, that's it. like people say you know yeah climbing everest or climbing k2 some people find it even harder coming down because you're now exhausted, exhausted yeah. and like you've given it because you're so focused like of reaching that summit, summit yeah you, people maybe, sort of switch off then coming down and there's more deaths probably happening in the mountain coming from summit than going to summit it's maybe about a two or three year sort of journey for people isn't oh, it like it's, it's sometimes it's it's a lifetime no people save a lifetime and it's a childhood dream for them to do everest mm-hmm. or something like that and they, they maybe put more effort in on what they should just to, to make it to the summit and a, a lot of people I don't think you need to be truthful with who you're with or with your Sherpa if you're exhausted turn around mm. but a lot of people will say oh it's not that far I'll give it a chance but sometimes then you don't get a second chance to get back down it must be hard <clears throat> to judge what it's not that far it actually is up there like because you could be so close, but you're moving like, so slow. I've let a third of the oxygen up there than you have at sea level. Yeah, yeah. And it must be agonizing for some people because, and especially, especially your judgment, you're sort of clouded as well, like from fatigue and things like that. Like 100 meters, people mm. think whenever you're only 100 meters from the summit, but that could be 100 meters vertical. Mm. But that 100 meters vertical could take you four hours. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, you have to think of that. 
you know, if people come back and says, oh, it's only 100 metres from the summit, the people say, well, surely you could have done it. Yeah. But that 100 metres could have been four more hours walking. I, and Catherine Junga, which is the third highest mountain, I turned around at 8,353 metres. I know that because I took a, a photograph of the GPS. And the summit is 8511, is it? I can't even remember now. But 150 metres basically from the summit in height but that was going to the ones that was with me two of my friends that went on it took them seven more hours Jesus. to make it to the summit from where we were that's unbelievable yeah and my, my I, one of the sharpest that was with us he had run out of oxygen and i wasn't going to put his life at risk yeah and i knew that it was going to k2 then three or four weeks later and i wasn't going to put myself at risk i can always go back and do attempt Catherine Junga again because that, that's it like it's like if you make that one wrong mistake it could mean your life oh it's, it certainly is that. yeah yeah and that's probably what's happened in a lot of deaths on the mountain just human error or a wrong judgment at the time so you're an amazing wife then yeah yeah <laughs> who's done bad water as well i yeah. can't believe that i've done two everest but she's summit everest with you yeah, as well twice, so yeah that must be an extremely special like because when you summit everest and you have people around but to have your wife there as well to to have a deep connection to share that with somebody yeah it was it was nice now the first time we done it together was 2009 and then 2016 and 16 was probably more special than nine because Whenever I come home from Everest, the first time I went to Everest, 2005, just above 7,000 metres, I took retinal hemorrhaging in both eyes. In both eyes? One eye one day, and then the next eye the next day. Is that just from and the cold and the snow? Atmospheric pressure. Yeah. So I had to come off the mountain, came home, and that's whenever we got our first dog, Babu. And Babu trained everywhere, us morns, he'd done the seven sevens run, everything. And he died just before we went to Leverest in 2016. So it was special because we then took his ashes with us. And just after we came from Summit, come down about 10 metres whenever there was less people, and we sprinkled the ashes, and it's probably the first time that I had tears in my eyes in Everest. That's unreal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we have a video of it and everything, and it was just fitting to put his ashes on the summit after getting the dog from the first time whenever i did come off hours because of the retinal hemorrhaging that's amazing like do you find it it's a very spiritual venture then always when you go up everest do you, it, are, are you spiritual sort of always? i wouldn't really be spiritual but whenever i'm there you're with the sharpers you're with your team and it's the thing that you get all your gear blessed on the mountain. You know, your crampons blessed by a puja ceremony before you go on the mountain. And I've done it every year. And it's the same as other smaller mountains too. We would have a, a puja ceremony. And it's just, part of the to me, it's part of the mountain. It's part of the climb. Yeah. It's part of the whole <clears throat> journey on the mountain. And, and we would always have that. And what about altitude then? Um, like, do you always climatize the same is it different all the time <coughs> you could go 10 times you no know, i was climbing with a, a friend in november there in a non-climb peak and he's done everest with me before and yet with all he struggled at five thousand meters it's just whatever way the body just wasn't acclimatizing right 
But you could go 10 times and feel brilliant and go the 11th, 11th time and feel really, really bad. Do you know what's actually happening when you're climatizing? Do you know? It's what? just really your body uh, making more blood, red blood cells. Mm-hmm. And it's just, sometimes you can acclimatize quickly. Sometimes the body just says, look, slow down. It's, ama- it's amazing when you think about that, isn't oh, it? What your body's it's actually doing. Doing that, yeah. So when you're going higher, it's creating more red blood, yeah. blood cells carry oxygen around the body, the body. because there's less oxygen. <clears throat> yeah, it's working harder. Like that is absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Like, yeah, isn't it? definitely. And like the body, pe- people think, I think the body can do a lot more than what people think their own body can do. Yeah. And that's what makes me, that drives me to do different challenges. Like hopefully next year, I'm going back to Everest this year with friends and if they want to do another on climb peak again, but hopefully next year, if everything works out according to plan, I would like to try Everest without oxygen. Mm. And so would Lynn, so the both of us are going to give it a go next year if we're still healthy and fit and well. Brilliant. That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice. Because <coughs> the oldest female to summit Everest without oxygen is 45. And next year Lynn's going to be 58. Like that's the full way yeah. without oxygen. Yeah. Jeez. You wouldn't want to stay up too long after that. No, no. <laughs> well, I've been on the summit before for an hour without oxygen. I've taken my rucksack off whenever you're waiting and people coming up and I've been there for an hour not using oxygen but I don't know how the body whatever you're actually it's okay standing and you're doing nothing without mm. oxygen but whenever you're climbing and the body's putting pressure on it I don't know if I'll be able to do it or not but time will tell and I'll, I'll take oxygen or I'll have a Sherpa carrying oxygen in case I need it I'm not going to be stupid then mm. I don't want to be staying on the mountain yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Amongst all your your yeah. other people that's up there, yeah. like there's quite a lot of. I'm, I remember seeing this a photograph one time. There's a queue of people sort of on Everest. It's like yeah. look like a hundred people up yeah. there. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, it's getting a very busy mountain, isn't it? It's getting all the, even all the big <clears throat> mountains K two and them all are getting more commercialized. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe more people are getting out there. They're getting more accessible. Yeah. yeah, and it's just, but I think a lot of the cues on a lot of the mountains is people not having the confidence because they're all in the rope. And if somebody's going slow, people yeah. don't have the confidence to clip off and go past the slow people. It's the same as if you're driving in a motorway and somebody's sitting in the outside lane at 30 mile an hour. You skip the queue of cars behind them, but then you have to have somebody that will come in and go past them. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people maybe don't have the skill and don't have the confidence within themselves to clip off the rope and go past that slow person and carry on at their speed. So maybe everybody they're, they're first time up there. Yeah. And they just know. And yeah. They're all these. They've read everything. They've yeah. Saturated themselves. Yeah. Like, and that's it. Yeah. And there's a hundred and thirty odd bodies lying that's about right. there. Yeah. As it is like yeah. so. Um, you must have passed the same people. Sort of. When I say the same people, people have been there for ages. Like. You do they can't see, get them down, like, can they? On the north side, in 2013, we, were, we had a meeting with the Tibetan Mountaineering Association and they were sort of asking us, uh, what can they do to make the mountain better? And we sort of says, well, move the bodies. Should you just put them somewhere and bury them with stones that people aren't taking photographs? Yeah. No way. I think it's really bad. <coughs> people taking photographs and then showing them in Somebody's Facebook one, like, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same as 
there was a famous person that everybody knew of on the north side, Greenboots. Yeah. And he died, I think, 96. He was a Indian, Indian army or Indian policeman. And there was a, they, they'd done a big story on him, I think about three years ago, there was a reporter from the US. She actually went out and visited his family and visited his mother and all and just got a whole insight. But uh, everybody just knew Green Boots because that's where you were arrested whenever you, you arrived on the, the ridge on the north side. But he's been moved now. So it's nice that just out of respect, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's what it is. Or if 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 the body can't be removed, put stones over it where people can't. Mm. No way. And um, one thing that I sort of read that truly amazes me is Burke. Bill. Bill Burke. Yeah. So he there's a mountain named after him, Burke. Burke Can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's named after Bill because he failed had three failed attempts. Well, it was named after Bill because Bill done a lot of charity work in the Himalayas. Okay. And he was the oldest person outside of Asia to climb Everest. 72, wasn't he? Yeah, but he had climbed it before because I climbed with Bill. The first time that he climbed it was in 2009 from the south side. And then he climbed it from the north side whenever he was 72. And I think maybe because of his good work and they were naming some mountains that it was named after him in 2009. 13 or 14 and then Bill went 14 15 and 16 to the mountain and the conditions obviously weren't right and then I've, I've known Bill for years like it's 10 years and then Bill just says would be interested in going with him in 2017 in the autumn and lucky enough Bill unfortunately didn't make it because he was sort of suffering a wee bit yeah. was uh, he a brave age then like, wasn't he? What Bill age? would be 75 now Jeez, but he would, and Bill didn't get into it until he retired. Bill was a very uh, famous lawyer, worked all over the world, and he really didn't get into it till he was like retiring at sixty-five. That's amazing. Like. Yeah. So you were the first person to summit. Yeah. Yeah. That mind, Myself that mind, and three Sherpas. Like after everything you've done, like that just blows my mind to actually be the first. It's probably, to me, it was probably more special than doing K2. Yeah. Because you know people has been in the summit of K2 before. People have been on the moon. There's more people have been on the moon than there has been on Barkhan whenever <laughs> we were doing it. And that's what me and the three Sharpers were, were just chatting about. Like, that's unreal, yeah. right, isn't it? So I'm so that's special. Do you look for those sort of challenges? Do they sort of draw you? They do. I, I was, that's what I was saying. I was there in October, November on a mountain in the Himalayas, uh, Kangri Shar, which is very close to Everest and it's close to Pomori. And it's never been summited. And we attempted it in October, November there. The last time it was attempted, I think was 2002 or 2003. Uh, but unfortunately, one of our Sherpas got hit with a rockfall and we had to turn around at the height of the mountain is 6,811. And it was funny, we had to turn around at 6,666, all the sixes. <laughs> so it was like 145 metres from the summit, but, but that was the way it was, and the conditions were just... And to me, that was more technical and dangerous than K2. And even the two Sherpas that was with me had climbed K2 before, and they said, yes, it was more... They found it more difficult and technical than, than K2. 
The shapers are amazing, like, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're very... They really very don't get the recognition, I don't think. It's almost like it's just, this is what they do. I, yes, they're excellent, but I think a lot of people nearly take them for granted. Mm. And they nearly think that if anything happens, a sharp is going to carry them down. But a sharp is only human. Mm-hmm. If he feels his life's at risk, well, he's not going to give his life for somebody that he doesn't know. And you have to respect that. Yeah. No way. Why should he put his life at risk and chance of frostbiting his toes or falling or getting killed because of a stupid client with him? Mm-hmm. And that's why I always say to people, no way. Don't think that the sharp is going to carry you down if you have a problem. You have to. You have to be responsible for your own life. Like, Definitely. Yeah. Like, yeah. And 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 like people says about sharp is leaving people i can see why no way because if, if if my life's at risk and somebody's doing something stupid and you've tried to tell them turn around or turn around and they don't turn around well that's upon you i'm not going to put my life at risk for the sake of you to make your achievement of something yes i'll go out of my way to do it as much as possible but you have to then think of your own life what, what's been your favorite sort of Klein. Is there one that sort of sticks out in your mind that was like... I like there's a nice peak just going into whenever you're going in the valley on the south side Davers Amadablam and it's just an iconic mountain. It's like the Matterhorn of the Alps. You know, it's just yeah. a beautiful iconic mountain. Uh, I like it. It's just every mountain's different in a way. The one that we just tried there, Kangri Shar, I would like to go back and try it. Obviously, if somebody summits it, I'm not going to go back and try it. But if, if nobody has summited, maybe in the springtime or the summertime or the autumn this year, I would like to go back and, and give it a go. How long does it... Um, it's bound to take a lot of your body going up there. Like, um, like, How long does it take your body to recover before you can sort of go again? Is it like an off-season for you and then you have that rest and recovery and sort of come back It's, it's, it's hard to say that because in 2012, I'd done Everest and within less than two weeks from the summit of Everest, I ran the Comrades Ultramarathon in <laughs> South Africa. So I think I come off Everest on a Sunday and 13 days following that Saturday, I'd done the Comrades 89-kilometre race. How'd that go for you? It's, it's such done, an yeah. iconic... Beautiful race, uh, and again, very, very stormy and, and windy. <laughs> but Was it up or down? It was up. But the problem is, with so many people, like, at the start line, you're going, like, nearly walking at the beginning. Yeah. And the problem is, people have phones and they're taking selfies, which then, no, you maybe go three kilometres and you're an hour into the race. <laughs> so that time is eaten into your time that you only yeah. have to finish the race because it's a limited time. And then there's cutoffs within the race, so you get taken mm. off the race if you're not at certain distances. But we, we've actually had somebody on the podcast that done the Comrades, and it's just steeped in history, that race. Ah, it's beautiful. It's, um, it's, it's, the, it's the largest altar race in the world. Mm, beautiful. Like. 20,000 people. Uh, so the seven summits i was talking to somebody yesterday who is just he's doing the ultra marathons in the seven continents yeah he's got antarctic left like so you've done the seven summits sub seven summits it's called isn't yes it? like, so yeah the, the highest, highest one in each continent in yeah each of the continent 
and that's um, there's quite a few people trying to get around that sort of yes circuit yeah circuit but you added your own twist to it I did I just decided whenever we were doing it in a way people had done it before the seven summits so I decided that once I would go summit to sea uh, going from sea to summit would be more difficult because you could do all your cycling and then yeah, not make the summit well, like. I don't know if it's more dangerous you would acclimatise better okay but what I'm thinking is, whenever I done Everest in 2006, I had my bicycle at base camp <laughs> and then cycled to the Bay of Bengal. But you know you're going to do it. It might take you two or three days longer, but you would hit to go the other way and cycle from the Bay of Bengal to Everest base camp and then that summit. So you summit at the highest peak in the continent and then when you came down, you used only human, human power. Human power, yes. Really bicycle, well. skiing... Uh, or walking just to get to, to the, the sea, sea level yeah and which was the longest then because some of them must be probably obviously the longest in time I think from we left summit to got the sea level was Everest because I had the yeah. cycle then through Tibet and uh, Nepal and the problem in 2006 the road into base camp was a dirt road whereas now it's tarmac no way because yeah. the Chinese concreted the road or tarmac the road because of the Olympics. So it would be a lot easier now to go from base camp and Everest to the Bay of Bengal yeah. than what it was. Never was it like mountain bike? Because you have mountain come, bike, yeah. You have come first in sort of mountain bike events as well, haven't you? Done a few mountain bike races over in Lake Tahoe with a friend whenever I was doing the adventure race and we would have done 24 hour mountain bike races. So you I, won it as well, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, you would, I would have done, there was maybe a 10 kilometer lap technical lap so we would you do a one lap each then you rest and then you do one lap so it's a continuous over the 24 hours of uh, mountain biking that's class like that's just it, it, your body can do more than what you think it can mm. and you find that you're always, like you're always obviously trying to push your limits from the stand and surprising yourself i suppose just stepping in a little bit further and a little bit further like but um, knowing when not to cross that mark where you're putting yeah. yourself in danger or your life at risk and though see the journeys down to the sea i'm amazed about those like and you've got crew with you or what way are you working well on? the likes of everest I had a friend who was climbing everest with me and before we went then to everest we arranged in Kathmandu through a person that i know has a shop so he would uh, arrange a vehicle if, if we did summit we then would have a vehicle at the friendship bridge crossing into nepal and he then would follow us. I would be riding my bicycle. Lorenzo would be in the vehicle <laughs> with this person and then just supplying water to me or going on ahead and trying to get us into... We don't, you don't know where you're going to stop at night, so you just keep going through. And it's the same as whenever we done Antarctica, we skied to Hercules Inlet. So there was me, uh, another climbing guide, and another person. So the three of us then just skied out from Vincent Base Camp to Hercules Inlet. That sounds class. It yeah, it was be beautiful. Yeah, like you could just, never... You're in areas where people would never be. No, it's yeah. the same as in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Pat, who climbs with me, uh, Pat would have been of Indian descent. And we used to have this thing because uh, they always talk about Papua New Guinea. There's still uh, cannibalism. And Pat would be, uh, we keep each other going, so it's not racial about colour or nothing like that there. And Pat, with Indian descent, Pat used to say, well, 
like you go into KFC and what's their premium food? It's it's white meat. And like Pat would have always said, they've eaten people like my colour before, whereas they haven't eaten people like you. And I used to say to Pat, but, but Pat, I can run faster than you. And sure enough, we did get shot at and whatnot in Papua New Guinea. And we just were using locals. I would say we were going through areas where they never seen a white person before or a Westerner. And what, what about your body then? Do you find, like, have you ever had much issue with your body sort of breaking down or... Because you, that's a like your CV is ex- extensive, like and it's been there for the last twenty years. Like I haven't touched wood. I haven't. The, the only problem I've had was with the retinal hemorrhage in two thousand and five, uh, doing a needle challenge in two thousand in Borneo. I got leptospirosis from the race. Uh, I was in hospital in the Royal for like a week. They didn't know what it was, but other than that and. Playing football, I fractured my leg a couple of times whenever I was young. And even like 2005, you do all these crazy things. And I was coming down uh, off Donard, running no problem. And I came down near where the ice house was. And I was walking at this stage, uh, or walking or fast walking. And somebody at the, the river shouted up at me. And I looked down, put the hand up in whatever way yeah. my foot and went. And I put my arm down and I fractured and dislocated my elbow. Just something simple like that. And yet with all, like an hour, half an hour before it, I was running down the rocks and I had no problem. It seems to be that's when you're most at risk. Yeah. It's when you're at the easiest path. Take yeah. your focus off it. Like, yeah. And it's um, I actually went over my ankle there about three, two weeks ago coming off Binion. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd like, I'd like it to be this glorious, like... Well, people who are over on my ankle, it's, yeah. it's pretty bad actually, mate, for a I've seen months. the I've seen the photos. And um, I was 30 yards from the car. Oh, I know. It's, <laughs> it's so fact. simple, yeah. And it just, you, it's just because you take your, your yeah. mind off it. You're relaxed and, it, and you're... It's almost, it was a good lesson for me, so yeah. it was like, you just cannot take your eyes Concentrate till you get to the car. <laughs> no way, yeah. that's basically... Is there it. one thing out there then that just sort of... Um, I've seen you work with the likes of Ranulph Fiennes. Yes, I know. I know Ranulph. Ranulph's a personal friend. I've known Ran as years. I, I actually crewed for him in a race. We'd done a race in uh, New Zealand, t- 2001, uh, Eco Challenge. And Ran then was doing a race with his team, uh, the Southern Traverse, two, three weeks later. Uh, and we'd done support crew for, for Ranulph's team. And I've seen Ranulph on Everest. In two thousand and nine, he summited the same day after me in two thousand and nine. Because he's he's real old school, like isn't he? Ran is real old school, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I remember reading his book a couple of years ago, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous. Yes, right. Yeah, and I think I maybe get a mention in some of his books too. Um, I remember. I, I I felt when I read that book, it was such a short book. Yeah. And he's done so, so much. much. Yeah. You yeah, really were hungry to re- hear yeah. the real story. Yeah, he's just like, a, just a real gentleman, old school. Gentleman, world, so world class sort of yeah. adventure, like so. Yeah. It must it must be great to sort of be involved in those and Red Bull as well got um <coughs> in contact with you as well to help yes. support some of the base jumping. We we won in two thousand and eleven. Unfortunately, we Valerie Rossoff unfortunately lost his life in two thousand and seventeen on Uh He came with our expedition to scout the mountain out. Uh, Mount Chansey, which is the some people call it the north summit of Everest. It's just the opposite side of the North Cull. 
<coughs> you turn left to go to Everest, you turn right to go to Chansey. And we scratched it out in 2011 and we found a jump site that was suitable. Uh, and then they come back with the team in 2013 and successfully jumped. That must have been exciting. Yeah, it was nice. No way planning for it. And, and obviously then you really, really had to concentrate in the weather conditions because you can climb in strong winds, but yeah. you can't jump off with a wingsuit with strong winds. So it was just getting everything perfect and, and getting the climatization done. Yeah. just in, in time for him it takes to a jump. lot of things to come together right it does it? And, and it's the same as climbing anything or climbing any mountain if the weather doesn't allow you you're never it doesn't matter how good a climber you are if the weather and the conditions and mother nature's against you you're never going to get it have you got that one thing then that's sort of out there that you haven't touched yet but it's, it's within your reach I would certainly try an Everest without oxygen it'd be nice yeah, to just to see if the body is capable of doing it because I think there's only I'm going to say that about 200 people has done Everest without oxygen that's amazing no thanks very much no really problem thank that. you very much yeah brilliant yeah when I looked at Noel CB I couldn't believe I've never heard about him as he only lives up the road but when you meet him you realise he's a very humble guy who talks down his achievements one thing that stood out was that although he's achieved so much he would never put his or anyone else's life at risk as he says, that mountain or that race will always be there for another time, so don't risk it. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just as the tune plays out, I'm going to read some of Noel's CV out to you. Um, I think it's amazing, I don't think we should go past it. In 97, he did the Himalayan 100 mile stage race where he came first. 98, Los Angeles Crest 100 miler in 19th. Um, Badwater 135, where he placed 10th in 99. There's also a video on YouTube from that very year in bad war so you should check it out he later went on to pace lisa smith in the marathon de sables which he placed first 99 2000 he did the eco challenge a 12-day adventure race um, i believe our own ian cummins from 26 extreme was with him in the year 2000 the eco chase i think it's borneo 2000 did the Adrenaline Rush 5 Day Adventure Race where he came first, followed up with the Eco Challenge again in 2001. 2002 he came first in Adrenaline Rush 5 Day, Beast of the East. 2002 he also won that Eco Challenge 10 Day Adventure Race in Fiji. The Primal Quest 10 Day Adventure Race he came 7th. Um, Irish 2 Day Adventure Race in Cork, Wicklow and Newry. He came first in each one of those races. 24 hour mountain bike race in Tahoe, he came first. He went back to the Himalayan 100 mile stage race where he came second. 2004, the Yucatan 5 day adventure race, he came first. Climbed to the summer of Alpameo in Bolivia. Airborne Sweden 6 day adventure race, he came seventh. Prim Primal Request 10 day adventure race, 10th Vermont 100 mile race. He climbed loads of um, mountain summits. In 2005, he's on the North Colm Everest, um, 7,050 meters. 2006, he climbed to the summit of Mount Everest for the first time in Tibet, then cycled from base camp to the Sea of Bengal, taking 16 days, 23 hours. Um, 2006, climbed to the summit of Kilimanjaro. He then cycled from the park entrance to the sea, um, 37 hours it took him. 2007, Climbed to the summit of Mount Denali, 
Alaska, then trekked and cycled the sea level anchorage. It took me 10 days to get to the, to the sea. 2007, we also climbed and traversed Mount Elbrus in Russia, then cycled the sea level uh, to the Black Sea, which took four days. Climbed to the summit of Mount Everest with his wife, Lynn, on the south side in 2009. Climbed to the summit of Mount Benson in Antarctica and skied to the frozen sea at Hercules Inlet. Numerous summits going through 2017 and in 2018 he was the first Irish person to successfully summit and descend K2. Um, Jared McDonald did do it 10 years previously but unfortunately he didn't make it back down from the mountain. An amazing CV. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I know I rambled on a little bit there. Um, until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.